It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John, I was away last week and something really exciting happened, something I've been waiting for for years. And it happened when I was on holiday, so I haven't been able to write about it or talk about it. And everything that I wanted to say about it has pretty much been said, which is incredibly frustrating. I want you to guess what that thing is. I feel it was timed specifically for you being away. Just, you know, (laughs) it wasn't really a surprise. You think she hates me that much? Well, (laughs) you are always tweeting her. I am. She never replies. Um, Okay, for listeners who haven't picked it up yet, Nicola Sturgeon's resignation last week came while I was away at half term. And so I missed it. And God, there was a lot I wanted to say. But it's slightly all being said. I was thinking about writing about it today because one of the things I wanted to talk about, which hasn't really come up in the conversation about it, is how the Act of Union happened in the first place. And of course, you know all about this, John, with being actually Scottish, don't you? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just, well, apart from, it's, we went bankrupt, didn't we, after we tried to set up our own colony? He went so bankrupt. Um, uh, the Darien scheme, uh, which was uh, an attempt by, attempt by the, uh, the Scots to set up a, a, an, an empire uh, abroad that would be in some way similar to that uh, that the English were getting going on. And it was a total, total disaster. 80% of the settlers were dead in the first year. Um, all the ships ended up in horrible trouble. I mean, the whole thing was an absolute disaster. And there is some argument about exactly how much of Scotland's wealth went into it. By the way, the best book on this is The Price of Scotland, uh, which I think was written by, um, okay, I'm just going to get your, your name wrong, Douglas. I think it was Douglas Watt, but if that's not quite right, uh, do uh, write in and correct me. I'm sure you will. Price of Scotland, brilliant book on this. So um, something in the region of 15 to 40% of all the wealth in Scotland went into this. The, most people settled on a number of around 20% of Scotland's money went into this absolutely failed venture. So, you know, the, the lowland Scotland was left virtually, virtually uh, in ruins as a result. And of course, the aristocracy had lost a great deal of money as well. So total disaster. And it was that that I think, well, there are arguments about this, of course, but uh, many people believe that it was this that prompted the Act of Union, because of course that, well, not of course, but as it happened, uh, a lot of people got a lot of money back out of it. So the uh, the Scottish shilling uh, was um, put to parity with the English penny uh, when it had been trading at a significant discount. So that was nice for anyone holding short, uh, Scottish shillings. And then there was a very large sum of money known as the equivalent that was paid to Scotland by England and was used to compensate quite a lot of people for their massive losses in the Darien scheme. So the point is that the union was born from catastrophic financial failure. And that has been leading me recently to think about why it is that the SNP believe that continued catastrophic failure will take them out of the union. Whereas, in fact, if you look at it the other way around, the best way to leave the union or to find a way to separate from the rest of the union would be, you know, success. But this is a strategy the the SNP have not yet tried. They've only tried failure. Why is that? Yeah, you would think that the best way to make the case for independence would for be for Scotland to be outperforming the rest of the UK um, or to be more appealing from an investment point of view or as somewhere where you wanted to live and work because it had relatively low taxes. Um, I mean, you know, Scotland quite often, or sorry, the SNP, will quite often talk about small economies like Ireland being very successful. And Ireland is not remotely ashamed of being one of the biggest kind of tax havens in, in Europe. Yeah, that's uh, going to come back to bite them, but we'll, we'll leave that aside. What I mean is with Ireland, like, there's no sense that you're morally superior if your tax rate is higher. 
Mm. Um, you know, it's got a corporate tax rate, which is what I can't miss 12%. And that's why Apple and lots of other kind of big companies push lots of money through Dublin. Yeah. And I mean, it does distort their GDP. How much does it help the economy? I'm not 100% sure, but it certainly shows that low taxes work. Mm. And you could do that in Scotland and uh, simply get everyone to shift from England to Scotland. We had this conversation before. We, um, I'm not sure that we have. I mean, they, they certainly, I mean, we may have mentioned it before, but the income tax point is, it's not even the, I mean, this is the other frustrating thing about what's happened is that they've changed the income tax bands a tiny bit in order to diverge from the rest of the UK or specifically England. But all it's done is add a whole load of complexity to the tax system and raised nothing because it's a matter of like tiny percentage points one way or the other. I mean, Scotland's got like five different income tax plans now, which is just nuts. Well, it also it also doesn't raise much because it mostly falls on higher income people and there are a the very small number of very high income people in Scotland who find it perfectly easy to shift their income around the place um, in somewhere where the border quite so porous. Um, the reason I thought we talked about it before is because I wrote about it a few weeks ago and looked at some research from the US. Absolutely fascinating because you know there's been this big shift in in uh, people between states in the u.s well you can argue about what's mm. big and what isn't but there's definitely been a shift in population from the likes of california and new york to the likes of texas and uh, and florida and obviously you know intuitively we would say well that's because they're lower tax states right um you know who wouldn't move for low taxes but the difference is very small i mean you're talking about two and a half percentage points of income tax, local income tax, because you've got federal income tax and then you've got local income tax, yeah. is enough to make people think to themselves, nah, do you know what, I'll get that U-Haul uh, trailer out and, and, and maybe move. And given that the differential at the top end in, in uh, Scotland is already two percentage points, you know, I don't know, maybe something will happen, maybe it won't. But you know, we'll, we'll see who the next first minister is and whether they have a slightly more rational uh, approach to politics and economics or not. I think that's a really good point. The other reason I think driving the, the move to Florida and things like that is partly because obviously COVID has put the idea of working remotely even more fiercely into people's heads but also I get the impression and any American listeners can you know write in and correct me on this but I get the impression that the big tech areas in particular like San Francisco have become very unpleasant to live in in terms of the quality of life deteriorating or they, they kind of the public sphere deteriorating. And um, I mean, I could see something similar happening in Scotland as well. I mean, I've spent some time in Glasgow. Uh, have you? I could not have recently. guessed. <laughs> tell, me, tell me something else I don't know about you, John, after all these years. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, I know I've lost the accent, obviously, but where was, where was it? Oh, yeah, no, I was out there kind of last year and... Um, I've got to say I was quite shocked by the how run down the city centres become um, during COVID. And it's not just me, I've heard this from quite a few people. Um, and it's partly apparently driven by people staying in their little suburbs of Glasgow now when they go out rather than heading into the city centre. Um, but it, it's just it's that kind of thing that's going to drive people out as much as the, uh, the additional tax burden. Yeah. And I suppose no one moves to Glasgow for the weather, do they? And they move to Florida for the weather, maybe. Oh, yeah, you'd move to Florida for the weather. I mean, Glasgow, um, I, hmm. yeah. <laughs> That's all he can say. <laughs> I'm gonna, we're going to move on from Glasgow. Um, the centre of Edinburgh is looking pretty ropey, by the way, as, as well. So it's not just Glasgow if that makes you feel any better, John. Interestingly, this is, this is another aside, and we're not going to talk about house prices. I absolutely promise listeners this is not <laughs> a shift into talking about house prices again. But um, someone reminded me that I wrote an article back in, gosh, 2009, 2010, uh, saying that I was buying a house in Edinburgh, and it was probably the worst financial decision I'd, I would ever have made. And uh, they emailed me to say, well, you were so wrong, that was ridiculous, and blah, 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 and you know, your house is probably worth a fortune, etc. And it is worth in nominal terms slightly more than it was when I when I bought it but I uh, looked up its value relative to inflation and you know absolutely bizarrely a house in Edinburgh has underperformed inflation over the last decade how about that seriously mm. since 2013 mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so where has beaten inflation well most of England <laughs> <laughs> that really surprises about Edinburgh I thought Edinburgh was basically 
sort of like southeast type trajectory. That's interesting. Surprised me as well. Then of course I'm only guessing at the value at the value of that, so I could be wrong. Anyway, moving on. All this is vaguely relevant to to Edinburgh in the podcast this week. I interviewed two of the academics uh, from that book I was raving about the other day. Invested. Remember that? Yeah. The ones who think that our job is a waste of time. Those are the ones. Those are the ones. They were very polite on the podcast, but I thought <laughs> I felt that I could feel what they were thinking. I tried to guide them into being, you know, into saying, Mary and everyone else is useless, but you offer huge value to the market. But they were not taking that bait. Um, anyway, we talked a little at the end of the podcast about what lessons they might draw from the book and what things there might be for investors over the long term. Things that you could you could do that might actually mean that you could, if not beat the market, at least hang around the edge of the market. And uh, their answer, because, you know, the terrible old cynics, academics, you know, well, about some things anyway, uh, was that you were much better off writing a book about money uh, rather than rather than attempting to invest money. And that would make you richer quicker. And I didn't want to, to burst the bubble by explaining that uh, both you and I have written books about investment. Fat lot of good that did us financially. I'd love to you know, know we write, how much You write books these days as a charitable service more than anything else, don't you? Well, what do academics get paid for their books? That's what I want to know now. God, I didn't ask that. You should you should do the Q and A bit of the podcast. You're much more aggressive than me. No, I didn't ask them what they make, but you know, but it's expensive. It's sixty quid. You know, it costs a lot more than your book or my book, right? Uh, That's where the money is. Anyway, so moving on from talking about what the uh, individual investor could do, the answer is being fairly obvious. You know, don't ever trade. Uh, look for value. Don't get taken in by stories. Or all these kinds of things. Um, it then moved me on to thinking about, well, you know, we've written quite a lot recently, you and I, about whether one should be in, in passive funds or active funds. And it looks like passive funds have out, outperformed forever. So being an active just means sort of paying for failure and paying rather too much for failure. Well, there is a growing view, and our colleague John Authors has written about this as well, that we may have reached peak passive to a degree because, of course, passive investing is really nothing but momentum investing. And there comes a point in the cycle when you don't want to be a momentum investor anymore. You want to be a value investor, right? He's looking confused. Yeah. Like, he agrees with me. Trust me, everyone. He agrees oh, no, I do. I agree. I do agree. At turning points, you don't want to be in the things that were popular for the last 10 years because they're not going to be popular. If you're holding a, a, an index and it's a, a market weighted as opposed to equal weighted, and this is something else you can do, by the way, to, to mitigate the effect of this effect of this momentum trade is you can have an equal weighted uh, passive fund, but mostly they're market cap weighted, right? So you yeah. tend to hold many more of the of the shares in the companies that have been the winners over the last decade as opposed to the winners of the future. And if you want to hold the winners of the future when a market is turning or in a, a point in the cycle, then maybe you don't want to be passive, you want to be active. And so that leads us on to, okay, so maybe you want to have some money in active funds rather than just in passive funds at the moment. How on earth do you choose an active fund? That's the, that's the only fundamental problem. What? How do you choose an active fund? Just choosing the active fund because it's that thing about, you're right, at this kind of turning point, there's, you don't really want to be in the index because the index is going to go down because it is full of the stuff that was popular. But then it's kind of like, well... How do we find the ones that aren't just pat, kind of, what do you call them, closet trackers and all that stuff? So I will let you tell us. <laughs> oh, good. I like the bit where he just lets me talk rather than interrupting me all the time. <laughs> so, um, the, the answer actually turns out to be, I mean, the, the nice thing about this is there is so much research on it. There is so much research. Everyone wants to justify their position one way or another. And you can, you can prove that active funds regularly underperform. You can prove they regularly outperform. But if you take out closet trackers, i.e. Um, uh, funds that more or less track the index, which, as, by the way, is, is most of them these days, because in order to, to outperform or even meet the performance of the index, you have to hold uh, the, um, the previous winners, right? So there's a lot of closet trackers still rock knocking around the market. If you take those out, there's quite a lot of evidence that an actual active fund, as opposed to a pretend active fund, can and even does regularly beat the index. So the very first thing to do is to look at it and say, is this a closet tracker? Is it actually an active fund? And that's quite easy to do because there's a very straightforward number called active share, which uh, shows you how much the holdings in a fund differentiate from a market. Very far from perfect, by the way, I've written about this. Very far from perfect, but it gives you a general clue. So you know, if it's got an active share of, um, uh, I think that the number we mostly use is under 60, then simply don't bother because you've got a closet tracker. If it's up at 90, then you've got uh, a a fund run by someone who's pretty dedicated to their craft and has some conviction and a proper stock picker. So, you know, that kind of stuff is relatively easy. So I wonder, 
And now we've we've got to this point where we look at passive and say, yeah, coming to an end. And we look at active and say, well, maybe it's time to move into that. I don't know. What do you think, John? Do you think that, that this is time for a shift? I've always found this division between passive and active a little bit artificial anyway. I just think, look for the... Get your overall asset allocation and then look at what is the cheapest most effective way to execute on that trade, basically. So, for example, if you've decided that we're at a turning point and the big growth stocks are the ones that are going to crash now, then you could buy various active funds, uh, small caps, value, etc., etc. On the other hand, if you want to stick with passive, you could probably just buy a FTSE 100 tracker and get exposure to an awful lot of the same sort of stuff. Well, that would work because then you're, you're, you're buying exactly that. You're buying stuff that hasn't had momentum behind it in the past. But I suppose then also you've departed from the global benchmark. Um, so in a way, you I mean, that is an active decision to, to put your money somewhere different from where everyone else is putting their money. So you'll get you're getting to this this point that we were discussing the other day, which is that there is actually no such thing as passive investing because every choice you make yeah. is a choice. Uh, you know, if you choose a, a even if you choose a a global passive fund of some kind, you are still tracking past winners. If you decide, well, I'm not going to do that, and you buy a different kind of passive fund, you're still making massive asset allocation decisions. Yeah, and also I'm slightly irritated with the kind of semi-religious tone is some of the coverage. You know it. I mean, well, you and I were talking about ETFs, passive funds for like, you know, at least 15 years or so. And I remember talking about this stuff and talking about how active funds were too expensive um, and really, you know, banging the drum for the passive side for years and years before anyone else was talking about it. Now you sort of turn and say, well, maybe active funds are going to have their time in the sun because everything's got, you know, it's, it's sell by date, everything's got its fads. And you get really radical, angry people, yeah, kind of like talking about the same talking points that we were making, you know, 12 years ago whenever it really was a rip-off industry. So you know, I just get fed up getting lectured by Johnny-come-latelys. <laughs> yeah, look at us. We have the only flexible mindset in the market. Um, but <laughs> look, I'm, one of the big differences in our careers has been the fall off in charges, right? So, you know, it used to be that it was absolutely inevitable that any active fund was going to underperform because its charges were so huge. But charges have come down and down and down and down. And if you look back at the research over the last couple of decades, you can find endless uh, bits of research showing that after charges the average active fund is out, outperformed over very lengthy periods. But of course, there's no point in looking at stuff after charges because we all pay them, right? So it doesn't matter. But it does show you that that investment skill is there. You know, that the, the, the active manager does have a skill. It's just that we pay too much for it. So as costs come down and down and down, or, you know, overall charges come down and down and down, as they have, the odds of the active fund manager outperforming have gone up commercially, right? So this, this works as a concept that the lower charges get, um, the more likely you are to outperform. So if you're looking for a fund, I'm going going back to key points. You want it to be properly active, so a high active share. You should be able to find that on the fact sheet. You want it to be low cost. The lower the cost, the better. And included in looking at low cost, you want to be sure that it's relatively low turnover because that's got a big impact on, on your end costs. And of course, if you've got a very high turnover, suddenly you might think to yourself, well, I'm looking at a guy not who has conviction, but who has rather too many convictions. And that could be different, right? So we don't want that. And we want someone with a set style and possibly with a, probably right now with a bias to value. So that doesn't really sound that hard, does it? Should we set up a fund? Genius idea. I'm sure we'll get seed funding from uh, from Bloomberg. Oh, I'm sure we will. Um, anyway, I think we we better leave it there because we're in danger of turning into the people written about in, in Invested and uh, doing too much talking about how things should be without actually doing stuff. So onwards. Thank you, John. Thanks, Mel. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, 
the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Marin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Marin Somerset Webb. This week, a closer look at the book that John and I have just been talking about and I have been talking about relentlessly recently. I think everyone who's had a conversation with me in the last three weeks has been forced to go out and buy a copy. It's the best book on investing, well, on writing about investing that I have read in a long time. Invested, how three centuries of stock market advice reshaped our money, markets and minds. So I managed to persuade two of the five authors to join me in conversation. Peter Knight and Helen Paul. And I started by asking Peter what on earth brought these five interesting academics uh, together to write about what is really a pretty niche subject. Not to me and John, but to everybody else, I think, a pretty niche subject. So I'd already been looking in a previous book at investment advice manuals that were written in the late 19th century around the time of the, the bucket shops in America. But I was interested in the question of, well, how far back does this genre, this kind of written financial stock market advice go? So we brought together a couple of people, a couple of friends of mine who are also from literature and uh, cultural studies departments. Um, And then we brought in two economic historians, Helen here and James Taylor at Lancaster, to bring the story right from the 18th century through to the present. Okay, so how far back? Does it go? What's the what's the first uh, written in English investment advice manual? It's probably Thomas Mortimer's Every Man His Own Broker, which comes about in the middle of the 18th century. But this emerges out of earlier things that might be construed as some sort of advice. It's the first real dedicated stock market investment manual for non-investors, for people who are complete newcomers to the market. Okay, but before that, there were various advice books on how to make money, keep money. And one of the ones you mentioned in the book that was much earlier, 1684, is it? No, the one, um, The Pleasant Art of Money Catching, Newly and Fully Discovered. That's one of my favorite titles in the whole book. I mean, that's a bit earlier, right? It's full of things like, you know, how to um, how to pay your debts without money, how to get a great estate in a little time. And I really like that. That's what I'd like to do. So these came before actual stock market advice, right? So there was already a genre of let me help you get rich quick. That's right. But it's not specifically about how to go and get into a coffee house and where you should go on which particular day. What there was were things like pocket diaries or pocket books that would just tell you a list of days when you could do certain things, which implies that people, a lot of people knew how to do these things. They weren't being specifically told, they were just being given an aid memoir to remind them that something was happening on a particular day. So today, this office is called. So what did happen on particular days that you could go and do? On particular days, the Bank of England would be closed, so you couldn't go in and do any transactions or 
there'd be a certain day there's lots of days where a bit like bank holidays where you needed to know that there was no point going all the way into London if the office was going to be shut nobody was going to tell you what to do once you were there it was assumed that you knew that. Okay, so this first book, Mortimer's first book, was about what to do if you didn't know what to do. So it wasn't just a diary, it told you exactly how to how to trade, how to know what to trade, gave you gave you what? It gave you step to step advice as exactly what to do, where to go and who to speak to, so that in a sense you didn't need a middleman, you didn't need a broker. But it also was several other things as well. It had lots of other bits and bobs in it like strange stories of brokers in the coffee houses and imaginary dialogues and kind of humorous interludes and all sorts of things so it was it was trying to do several different things at once but in amongst that is some of the more dry and boring detail of do a then do b then do c hmm. is that any good mortimer's book in terms of its yeah, advice i mean if you exactly if you'd picked up mortimer's book uh, you know, a couple of months after publication, read it very carefully and followed his advice, would it have done you any good? It would if you were highly risk averse. So if you are somebody who just wants a buy and hold strategy in big stocks, in really companies that are very close to the state, then that would be fine. That's what it essentially tells you to do. What it doesn't do is tell you a kind of get rich quick how to play the markets. So it is actually not one of those sorts of advice manuals that come about quite a lot later, which is about playing the market. He specifically tells you not to play the market. Oh, does he? So very responsible, nicely written, um, relatively easy to read and full of exactly the kind of advice that a responsible writer of uh, an investment book might, might give today. Indeed, but he does run out of road when there are other types of investment appearing. So the turnpike roads, the canals, they are starting to be classic investment opportunities and he's, he's not really dealing with them. So he becomes quite old fashioned towards the end of his reign. But when he is at his, in his pomp, he is the only writer around. He's just churning out endless editions of the same thing. Eventually, towards the end of the century, other people start to compete with him. And who do we think his readers were? Well, just about anybody who was interested in learning about the stock market. I mean, most people in the earlier phase of the market would have been introduced by friends or friends of friends or relatives, and they would have learned through doing, basically, or they'd got someone else to do it for them. So as the population expands as the Industrial Revolution gets underway. You start getting people who aren't particularly well connected to anybody and it's probably those people who need a helping hand through the market. So what happens next, Peter? We've got this book out there, it goes through edition after edition and then the markets begin to change and there's a, a, a new group of writers come in with different styles of advice. Yeah, at the beginning of the 19th century, you get some very dry, very dull books, which are providing kind of just market data. They're kind of uh, very sober in some ways. They're a reaction against Mortimer because they're basically saying the market is really only for professionals, only for people who can understand this level of detail. But by the time you get to the middle of the 19th century, there's a far more kind of racy, democratising version of advice that gets published in increasing numbers. And that's tapping into the speculation mania around first canals and then obviously railways and later more generally um, diversification of stocks. So that's the kind of the real explosion in the second half of the 19th century, that suddenly there are far more books being published than could possibly be merited by the amount of actual investment in the stock market. You know, um, in 1900 only in, in the US, only 1% of Americans are invested in the stock market, but you would never get that impression if you turned up to a bookshop or read adverts for these investment manuals that were being advertised in the, the Sunday newspapers. The impression was that everyone should be going down to their local bucket shop and uh, having a punt on the market. 
So do we think that people who weren't investing or didn't have the money to invest were still buying these books? Or do we think that people who were investing were buying lots of different books? I think it's a bit of both. What we need to remember, you know, the target market for a lot of these books in the 19th century was the, the young man on the make, the clerk, um, who thought he wanted to be as rich as his boss, but didn't want to go through kind of decades of apprenticeship. Instead, the fantasy was go down to the bucket shop, apply a few of these seemingly simple rules and, and get rich quick. So that's, that's the kind of um, client um, that these books were appealing to. I doubt whether many people were buying lots and lots of different books. But remember, most people weren't actually invested in the stock market. So it was a form of fantasy football for them. Yeah, well, I'm looking at this bit in the book. The guides encourage investors of modest means to think of themselves as heroically seeing through the smokescreens put up by stock market professionals by cultivating a stance of ruggedly independent thought and feeling. So, you know, the idea being to uh, uh, persuade all these people that through the book you could introduce them to the secrets that the professionals have and that those secrets actually exist. Yeah, so, the, you know, the books are doing t- two things at least. One is to persuade you that you as an outsider can somehow level the playing field with the insiders. But as part of that, the appeal was very much this sense of kind of masculine, buccaneering, beating the market. And the irony of that, or one of the many ironies, is that half the investors by this time were women. But the appeal, the, or the way the books are framed, is very much in terms of you need to be a risk-taking, heroic, lone, manly trader who doesn't give in to kind of feminine impulses of, of weakness. Well, sometimes we like to be heroic and manly too, don't we, Helen? You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we like that too. But this is interesting. Let's talk a bit more about this. At this point, half the investors were women. How is that? Is that because it's more difficult for women to possibly to own businesses, to own property, etc.? So the stock market is the natural place for a, a woman in the 19th century to turn if they have cash? There are, there are lots of different types of female investors. So you do get people like that who are shut out of other areas. But you also get people who are just diversifying their portfolio because they've got a business and they've also got something they want to put aside for a rainy day. There have been women in the stock market going all the way back, sometimes big investors, sometimes brokers. They've simply just been invisible to the writers of these manuals, but they've always been there. And I suppose for a lot of women, you get used to the idea of reading things that you know are made for a male audience, but you can interpret them to suit yourself. Were there any books written specifically with women investors in mind, with, you know, less of the masculine approach? There were, and certainly you get more of that as you go on, because as the hunt to write something new and have a new book out on the market, as that becomes a more and more crowded market, you start to see different segments of the market being targeted. And of course, half the population is a big segment. I've written my own book on women and money, so I'm I'm wondering where my moral high ground is here. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got here 300 years worth of these books, and when I when I read the book, when I read Invested, it slightly feels to me as though in it's certainly in the last 200 years, absolutely nothing has changed. The um, the style of the writing is uh, you know similar. The advice is, is very similar. Um, the audience that the books are trying to appeal to seems much the same. You know, the, the aspirational, the people who want to know the secrets, the people who want to get rich slightly faster than you might if you had to earn every penny, etc. So I suppose what anyone listening to this is going to want to know is what are the, the real investing lessons that can be drawn from these 300 years worth of books. I mean, I strongly suspect that both of you might say, well, there aren't really any, but they've got to be in there lessons that have held good for for 200 years. Well, okay, Helen doesn't buy it. (laughs) Well, I think the more, if you like, the more sensible books that 
allow you to see yourself as an outsider and make it clear to you that you're not going to necessarily beat the market. Those sorts of books that are maybe the dry and detailed ones are actually more useful. The ones that almost become like horoscopes or positive thinking will make you thin or, or whatever, the sort of things you get in airports that are going to change your life, those kind of books rely on a trick that you, the ordinary person, can be extraordinary just by the power of positive thinking. And those sorts of books really don't tell you very much. They actually get you possibly into more trouble than they're worth. So to a degree, Helen, you think that these financial books, stock market advice books, investing books are no different to any other kind of self-help book. They're bought more in hope than expectation. Quite a lot of them, not all of them, but certainly quite a lot of them are about changing who you are as a person, working on yourself to become this ideal investor. And there's something weird about being told that you should be aware of what the crowd is doing, but stay separately from them and do the exact opposite and somehow follow your own gut instinct. Well, why would you buy a book that tells you to follow your own gut instinct? It's, it, they don't give you secrets. They often tell you how to be a different person. But of course, then you get the, the chartist type ones as well, which are a whole other thing. <laughs> so you're, you're not a believer in technical analysis? Not particularly. I mean, if there was a pattern emerging that was that simple, then clearly it would have been traded on by insiders, wouldn't it? I mean, thousands, thousands of people have devoted their lives to technical analysis. Well, it's thousands of people who've devoted their lives to all sorts of other things that weren't true either, so. <laughs> the Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the US and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Helen, tell me, having gone through all these books, I'm sure you haven't read all of them. I'm sure you divvied this up. I really hope you divvied this up. Do you have any favorites, any books, particularly from the... the early bit that that you really enjoyed reading and you thought may actually be useful? I'm going to go and stick with Mortimer because I really like the fact that he tells you a lot about the world of Exchange Alley as it was then. And it's also the one that I spent the most time on. But I like some of the crazily named pocketbooks that people had um, that told you all kinds of weird things like fortune-telling almanacs and things like that. There were some peculiar hodgepodges that were very interesting. And then the rest of the team actually devoted themselves to the later books. So I dealt with the 18th century. 
Okay, so you didn't read any of those those later books? Not most of them. I mean, certainly, I think you could tell what's in quite a lot of them just by the titles. Yeah, I think some of those books are fascinating. And when you got to that bit, that was a bit when it really was possible, um, if you got it right, which mostly you didn't, when it really was possible to make proper fortunes and lose them again in a couple of months. So whether those books had, had value or not, they, they uh, certainly offered something that could potentially have been very exciting. Well, certainly, if you're going to put a new railway line down, you need to know all about the geography, the type of soil, where where are you going to take this railway to? The same for canals. So there was an awful lot of opportunity there to get right into the detail of things. But you start to lose that as time goes on. You get a very generic rules for investment that aren't connected to actually looking at the underlying value of the company. Peter, did you have any favourites? You know, favourite is an odd word to use. I mean, you've been asking us whether the, you know, the still useful advice from these books. And I guess my feeling is maybe you can cherry pick here and there. and There might be some snippets that are still useful. But I think the argument in the book overall is, is not in terms of individual books, but what is what has been the cumulative effect of 300 years of this damn stuff? And our answer is, it's not positive, that there's something kind of corrosive, there's something kind of really damaging about this uh, as a genre. Although individual books might have um, useful things to say, overall, what they're trying to do is persuade you to be a different kind of person. They're trying to persuade you that you can somehow beat the market uh, against everyone else. And particularly in the present, what they're trying to persuade you to do is uh, in effect, counter all of the effects of economic inequality and stagnation of wages and uh, all of these kind of larger structural economic problems by individual investment strategies. And I think that that's ultimately what we think is the mistake that these books are making, is they're trying to provide individual solutions for structural economic problems. Isn't that, isn't any solution better than no solution? I mean, if you can take people who, as you say, may be suffering from the wealth inequality that's been driven by low interest rates over the last 20 years and suffering from the low wages that we can arguably a result of um, long-term globalization, etc. If you can attempt to counter some of that by allowing people to build wealth in the stock market to allocate their capital in such a way that builds long-term prosperity for everybody, why is that a bad thing? I mean, it always seems to me that the more the more people participate in the corporate world, the better. And the more people feel that they have a stake in capitalism, the better. And if books like this, at the very least, encourage people to think to themselves that there's a way for them to participate, then something good has come from it. I mean, certainly that, that's how we feel. I think there's a difference, though, between forms of um, corporate participation. I know your book advocates for shareholder activism, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But... It still ignores the idea that we've lost forms of collective security in the form of um, decent company pensions, rather forms of social security that are slowly being eroded. And so the kind of discourse that you get in a lot of uh, recent books is give up, you know, if you could just give up your latte or kind of forego your your avocado toast, somehow that that will give you enough money to invest that is going to um, solve those problems. And we know that it's not, you know, that, the, you know, the housing market is is so far out of reach for so many people. And so many people don't have the spare money to invest in the stock market that is going to then provide them with the levels of security that they need and deserve. Uh, Peter, he's pretty down on financial writers. Can you see, can you see any good that has come out of encouraging people to invest in the stock market? As I work in an economics department, yes, I can, because... There are some sensible bits of advice. So, for example, you want people to diversify a portfolio. You, you're working in a particular company. You're given shares in that company. That's not diversified. And so simple things like that could help somebody. It could be also about trying to persuade people not to go and throw all their money at, say, companies they don't know anything about. Instead, the Warren Buffett type advice that's quite sensible 
for example, you could look at that. What Peter and other people have a great exception to is the sort of, as I say, the airport book advice where you, by simple the power of your own mind, can somehow become heroically different to everyone else and with a single bound leap away from all the economic problems. That kind of thing is almost doomed to fail. It's, and I suppose we've talked about this, Merrin, in the past, or your idea about diet books. There is a difference between a sensible plan as to how to maintain your health through eating and then the kind of weird crash dieting, celebrity diet nonsense. So these, there are, within this, different sorts of advice books. But the ones that seem to get a lot of attention, a lot of shelf space, are the crazy off-the-wall ones that promise too much. Mm. Well, they offer the immediate, the hope of immediate change, uh, which is what change. everyone wants from their self-help book. Yeah. Is something that can be completely changed in in three weeks. You know, bikini ready in a month, right? right? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> you you read some of the the books and advice newsletters around uh, cryptocurrencies and around the meme stocks during the pandemic. In fact, there's a chapter in it called Investing Through the Pandemic, where a whole flood of new investors came into the market. Tell us a little bit about that genre. Yeah, so in some ways, you know, this is obviously uh, very new, responding to emerging, emerging investment possibilities. But in other ways, you know, the message is, is very old. It's the message of democratization is a message of populism. It's the sense that somehow we shouldn't trust the experts, we shouldn't trust the insiders. Um, and what was animating GameStop was the same uh, political movement that was behind Trump, a sense that somehow the ordinary person was being shafted by the, the insiders in Washington and this, this was a way of getting back at them. And it was an absolute classic of what you were talking about earlier, a generation that has been unable to buy a house, that is unable to imagine um, their income being able to keep up with the inflation of the physical goods around them, etc. Thinking, well, this is this is our way to stick it to the man. This is our way to have a, a type of investment that will make our futures in the same way that, for example, property made uh, made uh, the, the boomers fortunes. Felt like that, right? Yeah, but it's um, but it's an even more precarious form of uh, investment than property. You know, where uh, accumulation through property is is, is uh, more long term, and at least you feel you still have something. Whereas cryptocurrency, the 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 wealth can just disappear overnight. Yeah, because it is nothing. I mean, I don't know. Helen, I always find one of the most uh, amusing things about Bitcoin, although I keep being told I'm not allowed to find Bitcoin funny. It's not funny. It's very important. Um, but there are some funny things about it. And one of the funny things about it is that whenever um, you need to have a picture illustrating Bitcoin, you get a picture of a gold coin. <laughs> yeah. You have to have something physical to illustrate the thing that doesn't really exist. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's it's funny how the same sorts of people who like gold and the gold standard might also like Bitcoin for very similar reasons. The idea of, well, rugged independence, we don't need globalism and, and the government should be kept under control. It's odd that these very dif disparate views are often held by the same person. Um, but also, obviously, when something goes wrong, you're not backed by the state, so there's nothing, no central bank is going to help you, basically. Brilliant. Is there anything else that you've, that either of you has gleaned from this uh, genre of literature that might help uh, investors today, uh, apart from that, what I don't want either of you to say is stay away from the market, stay away from the books. Um, is there anything else that either of you could, could offer as, as a positive uh, to people looking to invest today? So the one sure way to make money is to sell investment advice rather than actually uh, following the advice. Okay, so everybody uh, get out there and get writing and then uh, find a way to sell what you write on Substack. I would say get a financial advisor that's a reputable advisor instead of this generic advice that could be to anybody. Okay, so you really think that uh, that individual advice is the key rather than just going out and buying a nice Vanguard global passive ETF and uh, leaving it at that. When you've got all kinds of things like tax and inheritance tax, then maybe yes. And also you can talk about your your goals 
to this person and you know the generic passive fund might be fine okay um thank you very much and in the meantime everyone should go out and write what the the modern equivalent to um let me see uh short a short sure guide to railway speculation that was one of my favorites <laughs> i could see myself buying that and thinking oh i'm gonna be rich in three weeks but I might go out and write one now. Surefire, short, sure guide to crypto speculation. I'm off. Um, thank you, both of you, very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's Marion Talks Money. We will be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, which I do hope you do, rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Samasadi, additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Peter Knight, to Helen Paul, and of course, as ever, to John Stepek. Finally, my weekly reminder to do please sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. It's very good. You won't regret it. And the link is in the show notes. And one more special announcement. I will be doing a live taping of the podcast at the Bloomberg Invest event on the 22nd of March. It's called Strategies for Wealth Creation. If you're in London, you can join in person. If you're not, you can join online. Please do. Speakers include Luke Ellis, the CEO of Man Group, uh, Joan Solitar, the global head of private wealth solutions at Blackstone. And of course, me. And I think, John, you will be there as well, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. The link is in the show notes for your registration. So please do sign up there. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.